Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So Paul is writing a second letter to this church in Thessalonica. I gave you the background story on the church when we went through 1 Thessalonians. So if you want to hear it, you'll have to go back and listen. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through it. But Paul is writing a second letter to this church. And in this letter, he's addressing a primary concern. The people of the church are worried that they have missed the second coming of Jesus. Now, in the first letter, they were worried that their loved ones had missed out on something great and glorious. And Paul reminded them, your loved ones haven't missed out on anything. When Christ returns, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then you'll follow them. So they actually get a front row seat. They're heading up to meet the Lord, and then you're following them. They're not missing out on anything. In fact, they're right now in the presence of the Lord, enjoying the goodness of God. So don't worry about them. Well, In the second letter, they seem to have moved from their anxiety off of, well, did my loved ones miss something, to did I miss something? Now, just thinking through this, it seems odd. Like, how in the world would you get to a place where you would think, I missed missed the second coming of Jesus? Like, how would you miss an event like that? It's rooted in the persecution of the church. Paul taught in 1 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, so his last letter, that as you get closer to the return of Jesus, persecution is going to increase substantially. Jesus taught this in Matthew 24, verse 9 specifically. Jesus taught, it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's around Matthew 24, 25. It's this final teaching where he's teaching about the end times and what will happen at the end of the world. And in that, he said that persecution is going to increase the closer you get to the return of Jesus. So the church is in a period of great persecution and they're wondering to themselves, well, if Jesus said persecution is coming right before he returns and Paul said it in his last letter and everywhere I look is persecution, persecution, persecution. Maybe he already showed up and we missed it. That's their concern. So what Paul does is he addresses their concern directly and with encouragement, just like the last letter. But what I find most fascinating is that Paul addresses the issues of what will happen at the end of the world with very clear, specific details. In his mind, there's no confusion. And the way he seems to, have, to, to speak to this church, there seems to be no confusion on his previous teaching when he was there. He, he regularly says, I told you guys this already. Do you remember when I was there and I told you this? To the point where some of the things that he told them, they aren't clear in the letter because he assumes that they were clear when he was there in person and it leaves a little confusion for us reading the letter 2,000 years later. We'll get into all that today, but I want you to enter into this letter with the assumption that there is no confusion on Paul's part. There is some mystery about how all this stuff is going to unfold, but there is no question about what is going to take place. And that is the kind of thing that should be boring a hole inside of your own soul. 
just getting deep down on the inside of you. This sense that there is no question whatsoever about what is going to happen at the end of the world. It is clear in Scripture that there is a day coming called the day of the Lord, and you can't avoid it. You can't pretend it's not coming. You can't hide under a rock. You can't change the date. It is happening. And the day of the Lord is the day when Jesus returns and gathers his people and pours out vengeance and answers answers the wickedness of this earth with his wrath. You can't stop it. I want that sense, that encouragement, that boldness that the king has already decided how this whole thing will end to get on the inside of you so you stop worrying about what tomorrow may hold. Amen? All right. Hopefully by the end of this, you'll be as excited about this as I am. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul... Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. All right, let's pause there. Paul opens his letter with a standing ovation. You guys are killing it. Unbelievable. You guys are killing it. I can't believe how well you guys are doing. Every testimony that I get from Timothy and the people who have been near you at church is that your faith is growing and your love for one another is increasing. Every time you get together, it's a party. Every time you disperse and go out into the city, people are getting saved and they're bringing their friends to church. You guys are killing it. I can't believe the testimonies I'm getting out of your church. I am overwhelmed and overjoyed. And all of this is happening happening in the midst of great persecution. The city is shutting down your business because you won't stop talking about Jesus and you keep talking about Jesus. Homeowners associations are leveraging things on your home because you won't stop inviting people over to your house to celebrate the risen king and you won't stop. Your loved ones are being killed and you won't stop. He starts with a standing ovation and he's boasting over this church. And when I read this, the question that comes to mind is, Paul is spending a great deal of time boasting to believers about believers, and I have to ask myself, is that a pattern that I regularly follow? 
Because here's the question. As you're reading through this text and you're looking at Paul's life, it's important to get a little Paul inside of your veins, right? For Paul to kind of fill your tank and give you a perspective. So, so how should I live? And Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. All right, well, if I'm following you as you follow Christ, what are some of the things that you're modeling? What has happened to you in this transformation process? How do you live differently now than you did before? Well, one of the things that Paul seems to be doing is spending a lot of time boasting on Christians who are getting it right. And I just wonder what the landscape of God's family would look like if we spent less time calling out the negatives and spent more time boasting on the positives. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, it'd be easier if there weren't so many negatives. (laughs) Maybe that's a you problem. Maybe your vision is hyper-focused on the things that are wrong. And it's a hurdle for you to find the things that are right. Because it doesn't seem to be that issue with Paul. If there's something wrong, he has no problem calling it out. But if he sees things going well, he boasts about it. He spends a great deal of time in conversations with other Christians letting them know, man, I just had a conversation with somebody else, and, and every time I talk to this person, my faith is built up. I love being in the room with this person. I love talking about Jesus with this person. I love going to church with this person. Man, we were having this conversation the other day, and it, it, I walked away just profoundly changed. There's a, a, a pastor here in town that I've developed a good relationship with. His name's Bobby Brooks. He's the pastor of Deer Lake Church. Uh, They were a Methodist church. They disaffiliated over all the wild stuff going on. Uh, So they don't have an affiliation right now, so they're just Deer Lake Church. And I've met him over at a coffee shop here in town, over at Lucky Go. We just kind of run into each other, and we hear each other talking about Jesus constantly. And one day we're just like, hey, like, you like Jesus, don't you? And he's like, yeah, do you? I find out he's a pastor, and so whenever we see each other, we, we talk, and we had coffee, and we sat down, and we, we, we discovered that both of us have an affinity uh, for the Chronicles of Narnia. And we sat, no kidding, for like 30 minutes just sharing our favorite stories from the book series and the things that really just kind of stood out to us. And then we'd pivot back over to Scripture, because we're pastors, and then we'd pivot back over to C.S. Lewis. And I, I left that meeting just profoundly encouraged. Like, I couldn't stop smiling. I just, I thought to myself, like, like this, this guy was such an encouragement. So I did what the most natural thing would do. I went and watched his sermon online. Because I want to see if he's a good preacher. <laughs> the dude kills it. He's an amazing preacher. Like, when we're not having service on that Thursday after Thanksgiving, or Sunday after Thanksgiving, you should go to Deer Lake Church. Check out that church. Like, he's an amazing, he's a great preacher. But the point is that I'm modeling for you the kind of thing we're supposed to be doing on a regular basis. When you meet another believer who is, who really, really loves Jesus, man, boast on them to other believers. Let's start rewarding each other verbally for the stuff that we're supposed to be doing. It's an attaboy, it's a pat on the back, it's a yes, we are all on the same team and our values align and we can give each other high five. And every time we see each other, yeah, 
Billy Francis, that's another one. Every time I see that dude, he's got a big smile on his face and I know why he's smiling because Christ has profoundly transformed that guy. And I don't care if it's just a conversation like in the hallway or if we sit down over lunch, I am going to be encouraged in my spirit having a conversation with that guy. You know what I'm talking about? This is what I mean. Getting to a place where it is normal for us to talk about the encouraging ways that other believers feed our soul. Amen? All right, so that's just a side. That's not even where I'm going today. So let's go to verse five. So he kind of pivots out of the introduction. And he speaks specifically to their persecutions. So this is evidence of righteous of the righteous judgment of God. Now, what is he talking? What is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God? The fact that they are enduring persecutions. So he's, you can imagine the Thessalonian church are reading this letter and like, okay, well, thank you for the standing ovation, but we are going through it right now. And I don't really know why. I don't know why things are so hard right now. He says, this is the evidence. Why, what you're going through these persecutions, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. The suffering is molding you. Molding you into what? Into a person who is worthy of the kingdom you're gonna inherit. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's interesting. God considers it, a, considers it just to repay with afflictions those who are afflicting you. So those who are causing persecutions, afflictions are coming their way. Verse seven, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay, that's interesting. So all of these persecutions serve as important teaching points. One, they're molding your faith. Two, they're showing you the kind of punishment that the wicked is gonna receive if they don't repent. And it's also reminding you that when Jesus is revealed from heaven, the moment he returns, he is going to grant relief to you. But to those who he's not going to grant relief to, verse 8, when he comes from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Oh, that's interesting. Verse 10, when he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So something, that, we'll get to that in a minute, but that's fascinating. When he appears, he's going to be glorified in the saints and we're going to be marveling. Full mouth open, full marvel. So to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you 
worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, that's right now, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's pause right there. So Paul is speaking to the persecutions and the afflictions of the people. And what he's saying is these persecutions are doing a couple things. One, they they are perfecting your faith so that you will become worthy of the kingdom you are inheriting. You're suffering just as Christ suffered. So don't shun these persecutions, don't shun these afflictions or these tribulations, because these are the things that are gonna mold you into the kind of person that is worthy to inherit this thing that you're gonna inherit. So don't shun these persecutions, these afflictions. They're good for you, they mold you, they shape you. But the second thing that these persecutions do is they frame out for the world what's coming for the wicked. If they're going to persecute you, in the same way that they inflicted pain and affliction on you, the Lord will see fit that that is the same punishment that they will receive when he returns and pours afflictions out on them. So don't fret, because when he returns, you will be perfected, you will be saved. We're told in verse seven, you will be relieved When Jesus comes, the day of the Lord, two things are gonna happen. You're gonna be relieved of all of your suffering because you're gonna be resurrected and be given a new glorified body and meet him. And also, verse eight, in flaming fire, he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know him. So two things are happening when he returns. Salvation for his people and suffering for those who have rejected Jesus. Now, the the next question is, okay, well, when is this going to happen? The salvation and the affliction, when is this going to happen? He says it clearly. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, verse 7. Now, this is what's interesting about that. When the Lord Jesus is is revealed from heaven, salvation is coming, he will grant relief, and he will inflict vengeance. Where does that come from? Where is Paul pulling this from? He's pulling this from Matthew 24. Now we're gonna go back into this in a minute because uh, as we get further into the letter, because what you're gonna start seeing as Paul goes through this letter is that he is actually pulling the same exact words that Jesus used when he taught about his return in Matthew 24 to encourage the church in Thessalonica. And what you're gonna see is Jesus will reference the return and the sending out of his angels to gather his people up at his return, and also simultaneously at the same time, he's pouring out vengeance on the earth for rejecting him. Jesus teaches that in Matthew 24, and Paul was teaching that in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and also 2 Thessalonians. 
There, there, are, there are some who would read these two letters and interpret that the event that Paul is talking about are two separate events. That in the first letter, 1 Thessalonians, there is the return, and in the second letter, to, the return to, to gather the people, um, his people, and then take them back up to heaven. In the second letter, 2 Thessalonians, is the letter about the, the judgment of the world. And I would argue that Paul is arguing that Jesus argued that it is all the same event. The day of the Lord, the day he reveals himself from heaven, two profound things are going to happen. He is going to save his people, and he is going to pour vengeance out on the earth. But there's one more thing that's going to happen when he returns. Jesus is going to be glorified in his saints, and his saints will marvel at them. Now, what does that mean, that his saints will glorify him? I think the best way to understand it is to think of it in terms of validation. When Jesus was walking the earth during his first arrival, and he taught about the Son of Man suffering and being killed and then being raised again on the third day, all of those claims were claims until he actually did it. So you can walk around all day long and say, I'm the Christ, I'm the risen king, I'm, I'm the one who you should follow, I'm, I'm going to die and then I'll raise myself up again. And everyone's kind of like, all right, but like, are you going to do it? And then he did it. He rose again on the third day and that act of resurrection validated and affirmed everything he said up until that point. Everything he said about the way you should be living is now validated because he has proven that he is who he says he is. If he tells you adultery is not just having an affair, and adultery is actually lusting in your heart after a woman, if you're gonna live by those kinds of guidelines, you would want to know that the person who's establishing those guidelines has the authority to tell you what's actually breaking the law and not, right? If you're going to say, well, that seems like even harsher than the old law. Well, yeah, well, well why would I even follow with something that's harsher? Because the person who said it is the king. If it's just, if it's just random, if it's just John, who's just like walking around on earth and he's like, hey, here's a couple things you need to think about. Well, that's nice, John. Thank you for giving us those, those new teachings on the, on, the, on the law and the way we should think about this. That's nothing more than just the way the Pharisees would interpret the law. But then you've got the creator of the universe showing up and telling you, here's how you're supposed to think of these things. You better follow them. You don't have any choice. The creator said it, not John, Jesus said it. But how do you know that when he says these bold things that he is who he says he is, he validates it by raising himself from the dead. But here's the thing, there were other things that he said that haven't happened yet. Like I will come back to earth and I will give unto everyone what they deserve. I will separate the sheep from the goats. At the end of the age, I'm going to send my angels out with a trumpet blast. I'm going to gather my people, and I'm going to pour vengeance out on the others. And the nations are saying, yeah, right. I think I'll just do my own thing and put you over in the corner and kind of ignore what you're saying. You, you don't have any authority to talk like that. 
the moment he actually cracks the sky and does everything that he said he was going to do, he validates everything that he said and proves that he is who he says he is and has always been. That's what it means when it says the church, God's people at his arrival will glorify him and marvel because at that moment, every single prophecy that has ever been told in this book will finally come true and the entire world will sit there and say, he was who he said he was. And we will all marvel because at that moment there's no more dispute. There's not this guy over here who has a YouTube channel and wants to offer a couple things about what he has issues with in Christianity. Doesn't matter. There's no more need for apologetics. There's no more need for a street evangelism. It's all done. It's over. He's in the sky, literally returning with the angels and all of the believers. They've got resurrected bodies. There's an army in the sky and they're heading to Jerusalem to take over the Antichrist and to crush the kingdoms of this world. There is no dispute. He's literally right there. We can all see him. There is no dispute. There is only glorifying the sun and marveling because at that point it's all over. There's nothing you can do. You can't change your mind. You don't get a second chance. It's done. And so Paul says at his return, there's a couple things that are gonna happen. One, he's gonna gather his people to himself. Two, he's gonna pour out vengeance on the wicked and the nations of this earth that have rejected him. And three, those that he gathers to himself are going to glorify and marvel that the stuff we've been talking about on Sunday morning for 10 years It was all true. And the nations can't dispute it any longer. There's no more round tables on CNN discussing whether this is worth our time. No more politicians sitting back in a back room thinking about what laws we should, all of it, none of it matters, none of it. Price of gas doesn't matter, price of milk doesn't matter. Homeowner's insurance doesn't matter. What you're wearing doesn't matter. You got a new glorified body. Your hair doesn't matter. How much you weigh doesn't matter. Think about the glory that will be shown to the king on that day when he returns and gathers his people to himself and nothing else matters. Let's go to chapter two. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh man, I missed the best thing. All right, go back, hold on. (laughs) Go to to verse 12. Let me read verse 12 to you. I I missed the whole point of me saying it. I got caught up in how exciting it was gonna be. I missed the point of me saying it. Verse 12, Paul is praying a prayer over the people about the day that Jesus returns. The saints are gonna glorify him and we're all gonna marvel. Look at what he prays in verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you right now. That's the fascinating part about this. Paul knows that the day that Jesus returns, all of us are gonna glorify and marvel because he has validated himself. But Paul is saying, hey church, don't wait until that day. Live in such a way that your life validates his claims before he returns and cracks the sky. 
right now live in such a way that your life is profoundly transformed and changed so that when people look at you, they say, man, Jesus must be real because I knew that dude before he got saved and he is a very different dude today. The problem that we, we've got a whole church culture filled with people who, who they show up on Sunday, we're not really sure that there's no profession of salvation, there's no real transformation, and we've got a lot of Christians, but they're not really Christians. And then what happens is when persecution starts, everybody flees, and we're like, man, what happened to all the Christians? Well, I got bad news, they were never really Christians in the first place. Paul says, live in such a way that your life is so profoundly transformed that it validates Jesus' claims before he even cracks the sky. When someone looks at you, they should know that what Jesus says about himself is true because you have been profoundly changed by his message. All right? I didn't want to miss that. Now let's go to chapter 2. Chapter two, verse one, it says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, do not quickly be shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now pause right there. Paul is going to start addressing their concern. Have we missed Jesus? His answer, short answer is gonna be no, but he's addressing their concern with words that Jesus used in Matthew 24. So Jesus, excuse me, Paul says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. That word gathered is the same exact Greek word that Jesus used when he was teaching. The word is episenago, and the word means our gathering together with him in the sky. So the event that Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is the same event Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, verse 31, when he says he's going to send his angels out and gather the elect unto himself. That word gathering, same word. Now the question I have is why is, G, why is Paul spending so much time paralleling Matthew 24 in his letter to the Thessalonians? Why is he using the Olivet Discourse to answer the questions that the, G, that the church has? Well, the answer is simple, because Jesus is the final authority when he's speaking about himself. Well. At that point, you're like, well, duh, of course. Like, what Jesus says about himself, that's, that's the final authority. That's, that's what's true. But you're forgetting the constant warnings in the New Testament that the closer we get to that day when he reveals himself, deception and lies are going to increase. So it's kind of fascinating what Paul is doing. He's giving the church Jesus' exact words so they become so familiar with it that if somebody comes behind and says something different, they will know, that's not what Jesus said. You see where I'm going with this? Paul warns that you have to be careful of hearing teachings in letter format or spoken word format or even a spirit appearing to you and giving you some teaching. Now just, a, let's try to work that into our head for a second. Because some of us is like, well, that, that's not a thing, that doesn't happen. 
Well, if it's not a thing and it doesn't happen, then Paul wouldn't have warned against it. We know that Satan appears as an angel of light. We know that deception is going to increase at the end of the age. We know that demonic activity is going to increase, and it's not just going to increase out in the government. It's going to increase in the church, too. So what is Paul doing? Paul is getting this church on a steady diet of the Bible so that if some letter rolls in or some YouTube video shows up on your feed or some spirit shows up in your living room trying to teach you or tell you that the things that you believe or have heard in the Bible are not true, you can say, Christ is Lord, get out of here. And if you think you don't have to worry about that, I don't know why you think Paul would actually address this to the church 2,000 years ago. This happened 2,000 years ago, which means that we are 2,000 years later from this, so deception has only increased over the last 2,000 years. You need this even more than the church 2,000 years ago needed it. What do you need? What am I saying? You need a steady diet of God's Word. You need to know what it says. You have to read it for yourself. It isn't enough that the only Bible you're consuming is what you hear me read to you on Sunday mornings. It's not even enough that you start a Bible reading plan in January, but you only ever get through March. I've read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus like nine times, but I never can make it past Leviticus. I feel you, I get it. But that's not an excuse anymore. And here's why it's not an excuse, because deception is on the line. If you don't know what the truth is, you're a sucker and you'll fall for anything that's not the truth. Because it will come in the most appetizing format and it will come looking so much like truth. But it isn't truth, it's a lie. And if you eat it, there's poison in your body now. So how do you fix this? Well, I'll tell you one way we're gonna do it. We've been on a steady diet around here at the church of trying to memorize scripture on a regular basis. But the next thing I want us to do, and some of you already do this, but I want us to do it collectively as a church. Starting in January, we're gonna do a Bible reading plan for the whole year. We're gonna do it together, and we're all gonna be reading the same thing and talking about the same thing. And at the end of next year, when we've read, read through the entire Bible one time, we're going to do it again, and then we're going to do it again, and we're going to do it again, and you're going to keep reading the Bible until it becomes second nature to you, that you are so familiar with the story, that you are so familiar with the commands that you will not fall into deception. I got a little C.S. Lewis story for you. All right, so I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia series, and I get to the silver chair, and there's this moment where the kids get sucked into this land and Aslan, the Christ figure, comes to them and says, I've got a mission for you. But this mission includes you memorizing these really important commands. And he gives this little girl these commands and he speaks them to her and he says, I want you to say them back to me. And so the first time she gets them wrong, she misses like the first two. And he's like, all right, let's do it again. And they stand there all day and he's reciting the commands 
And the commands are essentially these things are gonna happen to her, these signs, and she has to repeat them back to him. And she's not allowed to leave until she gets them right. And he tells her the reason why we're doing this is because if you walk away from this and you forget the signs, you're gonna miss them. Troy, will you cut the air conditioner off for me? If you don't know this, things are gonna happen in your life that will deceive you and cause you to forget this. If you don't stay on a steady diet of this, some spirit or letter or person is gonna come to you and teach you something that sounds so similar to that, but you haven't read it in three years and so you just trust what they have to say and you're deceived. So what is Paul doing to the church? He's teaching them the importance of getting on a steady diet of God's word and only God's word so that when the second coming happens, they can rest and know. They can be confident in what's coming their way because they know. So I want you to learn this word. I want you to recite it and think about it when you go to bed at night and and let it be the first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning because if you don't, when you get to lunch, you will not remember it and you'll fall for a lie. And I don't want to shepherd a church of suckers. I want more than anything for this church to be filled with people who know this word inside and out and will not fall for a lie. Amen? Let's continue, verse three. Let no one deceive you. All right, Paul, we got it. Got it, no deception. Let no one deceive you in any way that the day of the Lord, this day of his return, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Man, if I could just be a fly on the wall, I would remember, I promise. But I just wanna go back and listen. This is one of those frustrating verses where he's, he's like, I told you guys all this. So I'm just reminding you of the highlights, but man, no, I wanna sit in the room, I wanna hear what you said. But we trust that in God's mercy, he's given us all that we need. And so it calms that part of me that is frustrated that I wasn't in the room and I didn't hear the rest of it, but I have what I need. And what is it that I need? That there are two things that must happen before Jesus returns. And this church can be comforted that they haven't missed the return, and I can be comforted that I haven't missed the return, and it's still coming one day because these two things haven't happened. What are the two things? First, there will be a rebellion. Now this word rebellion is an interesting word because it's interpreted two different ways. Some camp, some folks in Christianity interpret the word rebellion as a worldwide rejection of Jesus. Everywhere you look, everybody has rejected him. Nobody wants anything to do with him outside of the church. The world has fully rejected Jesus. There's not even a couple outlier governments that are still like, yeah, we like, we're, we're still Christians. Uh, no, it's all gone. If you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus, 
then you can excel in any area. Like all you have to do is reject him. It's a worldwide rejection. The second understanding or interpretation of this is that this word rebellion is actually an apostasy in the church. Seeming believers are turning their back on Jesus and leaving the church in mass numbers. Now I happen to believe that I think it's a little bit of both and that's why the word is interpreted in English as rebellion, but in Greek the word is um, apostasia. It's the word we use for apostasy. Turning your back on Jesus, rejecting his truth. That's the word in Greek, apostasy. The great apostasy has to happen first. Now I say both because I think that there will be a worldwide rebellion of anything that even smells like Jesus. As we get closer to the end, the world will want nothing to do with anything that has to do with Jesus. But simultaneously, there will also be a great falling away because many who said they loved Jesus, their love has grown cold. Now where does that come from? Matthew 24, verses 10 through 12. Paul is citing Matthew. Don't you, or Paul is citing Jesus. Don't you remember what Jesus said? Before his second coming, there's gonna be a great falling away. The world is gonna hate Jesus, and there are gonna be many who are part of the local church who will fall away and want nothing to do with him. And some of those people who fall away, they'll be pastors and deacons and elders and leaders in the church and people you never thought, but their heart was never really turned. And they're gonna walk right out the door and people are gonna follow them. That's the first thing that's gonna happen. The second thing that's gonna happen, so what are these things? These two things have to happen before Jesus returns. There's gonna be a great rebellion among the nations and an apostasy in the church. People are gonna leave in mass numbers. And two, the man of lawlessness, son of destruction, or as it's referred in other places, the Antichrist is going to be revealed. And you're gonna see him for who he is. Now this Antichrist figure is is fascinating because this, this, this idea, this picture, this, this symbol has been borrowed into mainline society. Satan's doing this. But you see this figure in culture personified in all kinds of different ways. And all it does is the same thing that the cartoon devil does to us. When we look at this silly little devil character with like the horns and the little pokey red tail, he doesn't seem as intimidating. Well, that's exactly what he wants you to think. The Bible portrays him as prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. He's the one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He's not this cartoon red devil. No, he's much worse than that. Steal, kill, destroy, that's what he wants to do. And we're told that before Jesus returns, a man is going to rise to power and he is gonna personify everything that is opposite of what Jesus stood for. Jesus speaks of the Antichrist in Matthew 24, 15. Daniel speaks of the Antichrist in Daniel eleven thirty one 31 and Daniel 12, 11. John speaks of the Antichrist in Revelation 13. We talked about that when we studied the Revelation series of the beast that came up out of the water, the first beast, that's the Antichrist. He also speaks of Antichrist in 1 John 2, 18. In that verse, he says that many Antichrists will rise 
But there will be one final antichrist that will be worse than anyone who has ever come before. And his tongue is gonna be silver. He's gonna be such a good liar. And he's gonna make deals and people are gonna follow him and people are gonna, they're gonna throw themselves at him. They're gonna give, they're gonna give everything to him. They're gonna follow him and just trust him. Everything he says, they're gonna excuse. If something comes out of his mouth and it seems, ah, oh, it seems off. No, 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 ignore that. Look at what he stands for. Look at what he's doing. Look at all the things that he's brought to us. See, Satan wants to portray himself as the father. And he wants a son figure, just like the father has Jesus. And so he will anoint an anti-Christ. And there will be a false prophet that will serve like the Holy Spirit. And there will be this unholy trinity that is ruling the nations at the time just before Jesus arrives. And we're told that he's going to take his seat, this antichrist figure, He's going to take his seat in the temple and claim to be God. Now this is another source of confusion. And this is, this is what's so hard about interpreting prophecy moving forward. In the past, it all makes sense. You're like, oh, I see what they were doing there. I get that. Suffering king, a shepherd, I get it. Line of David, I totally understand it. All that makes sense. But looking forward, you get it, but you don't quite get it. And so one of the things that he's saying here is that he's going to take his seat in the temple. Now that could very well be a physical temple. And there are some who believe that one of the things we're waiting for at the return of Jesus is that they're going to build, Israel is going to build a third temple like Solomon's temple somewhere in Jerusalem, maybe on the Temple Mount, maybe in the city of David, just off of the side of it. But that's one of the signs you're looking for, an actual third temple being rebuilt, and this figure is gonna go into the temple, and he's, gonna, he's going to desecrate the temple. Now this idea comes from a figure who was very similar to the Antichrist figure that goes all the way back to 167 BC. When the Greeks were ruling the world, there was this one king named Antiochus Epiphanes, and when he came in, rolled in Jerusalem, took the city, he walked into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the temple, like right where the Ark of the Covenant would be. Sacrificed a pig in it, desecrated the temple. Now that was 167, when this was written, you're talking just 150 years later, that imagery is burned into the mind of first century Jews. They remember when that happened. It's still in their history books. And so when Jesus and when Paul is writing this, they're referencing that moment in time where the, the, this figure stepped into the temple and did something you aren't supposed to do in the temple. And they're thinking, okay, the scale of that awfulness, that is gonna happen again when the Antichrist, the worst person who's ever lived, is going to come in and do that in a physical temple. That's one possibility. The only problem that I have with that is that when Paul talks about the temple in the New Testament, every time he talks about the temple, he talks about believers. See, the third temple has already been rebuilt. It's you. You're the temple. Where does the Holy Spirit live? Where is God's presence reside? It's in you. He talks about the temple being the church. He talks about the temple being Christ's body. Christ says, hey, you see this? I'm gonna tear it down and in three days rebuild it. Well, three days later, he rose from the dead. He did rebuild it. He fulfilled his own prophecy. And so when Paul is speaking of the Antichrist figure coming into the temple and setting himself up and claiming that he's gonna be God, that may be a very physical temple, but to me, I read it as a symbolic temple 
God's people, his presence, I see the Antichrist figure coming in and infiltrating the church and setting himself up as a global leader over the global church, leading to the apostasy of people fleeing the church. I see them as connected. Let's go to verse six. You know what is restraining him right now so that he may not be revealed at this time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing but the appearance, by the appearance of his coming. So the appearance of his coming, he's going to end the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them strong delusions so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So Paul says, that you haven't missed the second coming because the rebellion has to come and the Antichrist has to be revealed and the Antichrist can't be revealed until the restrainer is removed. Now the big question now is what is the restrainer? Well, some folks think that the restrainer is the church. Some folks think that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Some folks think that the restrainer would just be God in a sense. Maybe the restrainer is an angel. Maybe the restrainer is government. But he talks in a sense that they understood what this was when he was there the first time and doesn't clarify it. Now, where do I fall on this? I think that the restrainer is spoken of as a who and also a he I think the restrainer, the most attractive to me, is either maybe it's an angel, because we're told in Revelation 9-1 that there's an angel who's a key to the bottomless pit, and there are certain aspects of evil that are not allowed to do things on earth until God says this trumpet blows and this key is released and these things. So there's precedent in scripture for angels having the authority to restrain these certain aspects of evil. I think it's one thing, and it's kind of attractive to me. But to me, the most attractive thing, I think the restrainer here is government. And you're like, government? Well, that's not pretty. What are you talking about? Because what Paul has prophesied has already started to take place. What restrains lawlessness? Law. Law restrains lawlessness. Government structures that God has established, authority structures, that restrains lawlessness. But what happens when lawlessness controls the law? That sense of restraining lawlessness is gone because the thing that's supposed to be restraining is itself lawless. And so what you're watching right now, why are we at a place now where we should start being more hyper alert of this time period that we're in? Because we're watching a period of time where the thing that God has given mankind to restrain evil has now itself become evil. So whatever your view, we don't have to argue about it, 
But we do have to agree that there is something restraining this evil, and once it is removed, we have moved into the season where the Antichrist can take over. But for me, the most fascinating thing in verses 8 through 12 is, one, the speed of the events that Paul is referencing and the massive worldwide scale. And that's what I want to direct your attention to as we close today. The idea that the revealing of the Antichrist his declaration as God, and then the end of him all happens in like two verses. The speed at which this seems to take place is a quick process, maybe only, I don't know, three and a half to seven years, max. Daniel speaks of this, times, times, half a times, in prophetic language, there seems to be this indication that there is a short window in which the Antichrist will be allowed to operate, and it's maybe only like three and a half, three and a half, seven years, somewhere in that period of time. From the point where he reveals himself to the point where he sets himself up with God to the point where Jesus comes back and ends him, it's a very, very short window. It is a very short window. It is a very massive, or, 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 or a, a quick pace, and it is a very massive worldwide scale. The world is globally blind. It happens fast, and everyone gets caught up in it. Do you remember a little thing that happened in 2020? Do you remember how quickly people lost their minds? Do you remember how quickly the world changed? That is the kind of speed and worldwide magnitude we're talking about. See, everybody's interconnected now. And all it takes is a couple very influential people to tell you what to think, and all of a sudden, you're caught up in it. But here's the thing. We're told from Paul's words that the world is blind because God gave them a delusion. God made them blind. Why would God do that? Because at that period of time when there is worldwide deception, there is also worldwide access to the truth. See, the issue is, it's not like people don't know what's true. People in this period of time know what's right and what's true, but they don't love it. They love the darkness more than they like the light. That's the real problem. You can find the truth if you're just looking for it. But most people have looked, have found it, and they didn't like what they found because they liked something, they loved this more. And God says, all right, if you're gonna love the darkness more than my son, the light, then I'm gonna give you over to that delusion. And this deception is gonna be worldwide. Now in this letter, Paul is describing a world that's filled with persecution, Deception, famine, wars, sickness, disease on a global scale. He's painting a picture of a world where there is a mass exodus from the church and a rejection of Jesus in the world and a period of time where a leader will rise up and promise to save the day and most will love him and follow him. And with that same speed and urgency that he rose to power, Jesus is going to return, return and destroy him. That's the first two chapters of Thessalonians. Now why is this important? Why are we reading this right now? 
Why is this relevant for the Thessalonians and why are we studying it today? Because this world that Paul is describing looks very similar to the world we live in today. Now I'm not trying to be one of those fools that picks a date for Christ's return. We're told not to do that. But we are told to watch the seasons and stay alert. And I'm telling you that you shouldn't be overly obsessed about a specific day and the repercussions that come with being overly fixated on the fact that Jesus is coming and so I don't need to prepare. We'll cover that next week when, G, when Paul speaks about living an idle life because Jesus could return at any moment. I'm talking about living in such a way where you are awake, alert, and paying attention so that you don't fall for the lies of the enemy. That you are prepared in such a way that the word of God is flowing through your veins and you are ready for a much tighter window of his return than you have ever in your entire life. I know the response, you're thinking like, every generation says this, every generation says they're closer. Well, guess what? Every generation is closer. (laughs) Tomorrow, we'll be closer than we were today. But what I'm arguing for is that there seems to be a very tight window in which things are functioning, and most of the things that we're told we need to watch for, they seem to have already started. And so I'm arguing that you should be living in such a way that the return of your king is never farther than seven years away. Think about the speed at which everything changed in 2020. Just think about how quickly things can globally shift. You should never position yourself in such a way that you're living that his return or your accountability for his return, man, that's way out. No, it's not. It is not far off. It is the time it would take to get a master's degree. So here's what I want to do. I want to end reading you the parable that Jesus gave his people right after he taught about the return of himself. Go to Matthew 25, and I'm going to end on this. So Jesus in Matthew 24 has just taught that that he is gonna return and here's all the things you need to be paying attention to before he returns. Watch, Watch for these signs, he just said these. And then the very next thing he says is this, Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. The bridegroom was delayed and they all became drowsy and slept, but at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, but the foolish said to the wise, oh, please give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the doors were shut. And afterward, the virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he said, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. 
Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.